The following program is a tribute to the late Ruth Brown, who died on November 17, 2006, at the age of 78. This program was originally produced in December 1998. From the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio, this is In Black America. When I began, music was a way for me to get out. Not really get out, and then on the other hand, it was a way for me to contribute. And I knew because one day I sang for a wedding and they paid me $35. That was more than my father made for the whole week on his job. My father was a laborer and worked very hard. Only lived to be 42 years old. My mother was a domestic. But the kind of money that I see being earned, if I'd had a better sense of the business, I probably would not have been fighting for 11 years against my parent record company for back royalties. And in so doing, I brought about uh, the construction of a foundation called the Rhythm and Blues Foundation who now looks and fights for back royalties. Well, that's what the intent okay. is. Ruth Brown, the original queen of Rhythm and Blues. Her career has taken her from the Apollo Theater to Broadway. In re recent years, Brown has been on a remarkable role. In addition to her radio work, her appearances on records and at nightclubs, she has been racking up award after award for a published autobiography titled Miss Rhythm that is being made into a movie. Her work in film, on television, and on the Broadway stage. This blues superstar has been in the blues business for decades. Brown had so many hits during an 11-year period starting in 1949 that Atlanta Records was called the house that Ruth built. In 1989, Brown made her Broadway debut in Black and Blue. Her performance earned her a Tony Award. Also that year, she received her first Grammy. I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, the queen of rhythm and blues, Ruth Brown, In Black America. Gonna take a sentimental journey today. Gonna set my heart at ease on my way. I would take Harlem Hit Parade, first of all. Mm -hmm. And in that particular radio show, I was able to talk one-on-one -on -one with stars that I had worked with. And baby, they couldn't lie looking at me because I was there. there. Okay. You know, and it was always interesting. Do you remember? You know, like Bo Diddley was on my show and I said, Bo Diddley, do you remember the night I had to run in your hearse in Kansas City to get out because Jackie Wilson didn't show up? And the audience was going mad throwing bottles. And Bo Diddley was taking his band around in a hearse at that time. Mm -hmm. And I jumped in the hearse to get out of town with him, you know. So there were things that we could remember. You know, I could talk to Etta James and everybody else. And I always was proud of that show. I was proud of it. And now there are a couple of other shows that kind of following behind that idea. Good enough, you know. But some of it is like... Uh, not real. There are a lot of the legends that are still around. People just don't look for them. Ruth Brown is a survivor. From the heyday of Jackie Wilson, Sam Cooke, and Big Joe Turner, the days before rhythm and blues was recast as rock and roll. 
In the 50s, she was known as Miss Rhythm. Also during that time, she was the top female star in R&B. Born Ruth Weston on January 12, 1928 in Portsmouth, Virginia, she is the oldest of seven children. She sang in the church choir and then joined Lucky Milner's big band after winning a talent contest at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Her two dozen hits at Atlantic Records helped secure its footing in the record industry. Recently, Ruth Brown was in Austin for a taping of the public television program Austin City Limits, and In Black America had an opportunity for this exclusive interview. I am, I was, I lost a sister last year, the oldest of, of uh, seven children. Mm -hmm. And I always say it's quite a question that I have never really found the answer to as to why out of seven children I was the one that could sing. So I believe that it was a gift indeed, you know. But growing up in Virginia had its highs and lows, its, its highs being whenever I got a chance to sing, and most time that was in the church. And that is not unusual, you know, right. for, for any uh, child uh, who came up with the kind of family background and the portions and positions from which we came. I spent my summers in North Carolina. I spent all of my school seasons in Portsmouth, Virginia, going to school. But June 15th, when school closed, the next day we were on whatever means of transportation there was to get us to North Carolina, to my grandmother, mm -hmm. to go into the fields and work as sharecroppers all summer. Okay. And uh, indeed, when I was a girl coming up, it wasn't a happy time. But now that I'm a woman and I look back at that, it was a good time, good time, you know, and I think that all of that background has a lot to do with my stamina today mm -hmm. and being able to endure certain things that a lot of ordinary people might say, how'd you do that? Do that. Well, it had a lot to do with family, okay. uh, the morals by which we lived, mm -hmm. uh, the respect we had for our parents out of total fear. <laughs> I understand. Well, you know what I'm saying. I you know, uh, I remember so well that irregardless to what the situation was, when my father came home, he was the man of the house. Mm -hmm. No doubt about it. You know, we were told children should be seen and not heard. heard. You've heard that, right? I've heard that. And speak when you're spoken Me to too. and come when you call, like they're talking to a little puppy ready. dog, but that was it. But when I came to North Carolina, I remember that we, we went to a church called Lovely Hill Baptist Church. This was in Macon, North Carolina. And there was an old upright piano, not anything else. Mm -hmm. That church did not have an organ, and a lot of the music was just plain old a cappella singing, mm -hmm. inspired by whoever would start singing. singing okay. You understand? And that particular church I remember so well because my grandmother on Sundays, after having worked the fields all week long, on Sundays, you were obliged to go to church. Nothing else happened. Correct. Nothing else happened. And being the oldest girl, I was up like 4 o'clock in the morning anyway to get mm -hmm. breakfast. I had to learn how to cook and feed everybody else. Mm -hmm. And we had to be finished with breakfast, cleaned up, and then go and get your shoes and get your blue seal Vaseline, you know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about, and get the elbows and the huskiness off mm -hmm. of you and go to church and sit on the back of the wagon going to the church because that's the, the means of transportation. My grandmother didn't have a car, right. but we had a wagon, wagon and a mule. Do you remember that first big break, that first recording session? Yes. 
Tell us about it. I remember it because I was on crutches. How did you happen to? I had been in an automobile accident that had waylaid me one year. Okay. I was en route from Washington, D.C., and I was riding in the car with Blanche Calloway, K.F. Calloway's sister, mm -hmm. who had become my manager, and she was taking me to New York to go on the Apollo Theater stage because mm -hmm. she had spoken to Frank Schiffman, and like sight unseen, she told him that she had discovered this girl with the great voice and to please give her a shot. I was on my way to New York to do that, and at the same time to sign a contract with Atlantic Records because they had a verbal agreement mm -hmm. that they were going to sign me. And I was on my way there. And we got to Chester, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Philadelphia. And there was an automobile accident. And my legs were crushed and I remained in the hospital for one year. Mm -hmm. So when I finally got into the recording studio, I was on crutches when I went in. And I went in because Atlantic didn't really know what to do with me musically. Remember that first song? Yes. The song at the... So Long. So Long. And on the other side was a song called It's Raining. I'd never forget it. You know? So long. Hope we'll meet again someday. Hope that maybe then you'll say. They weren't sure uh, where they were going to put me because at that particular time we were not identified as R&B singers. Okay. You know, you were mainstream, it was race music, music, you know, and either the things that I was singing were based on country and western because that's mostly what I heard, mm -hmm. you know. But I did go into the studio and the reason that they took me in, they were doing a show called Voice of America. Mm-hmm. Cavalcade of music, music for the Voice of America, which was for Armed Forces Radio at that time. Mm -hmm. And they were recording Eddie Condon and uh, Buddy uh, Bobby Hackett okay. and Ernie Caceres and Big Sid Catlett. I remember it well. And there was a space that mm -hmm. they needed to fill, and that's what mm -hmm. they brought me in for. And I remember that when I went into the studio that day, there was this kind of, uh, not a, a strange attitude, but you know, learned musicians who are technicians mm -hmm. uh, have a great respect for each other. And then in comes this woman that can't even tell what the signature means on the music, <laughs> no, on the paper, you know. Nor can she read, I don't know what key I do anything yeah. in. And so they all of a sudden, oh, well, here we go again. <laughs> you know, let's do this and get it yeah. over with. And I'll never forget that they played like the introduction to this song. And when I went into it, I guess I did about eight bars. And Big Sid Catlett, the drummer, stopped it. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's go back and do this right. Because this kid can sing. I remember that. And that was my first experience in the studio. And that tune was pulled out from that. Mm -hmm. volume and that was my introduction uh, to the music mm -hmm. business the first female over on Atlantic Records. Are there any musicians that you like to perform with or go into the studio with for your recording? Oh at that time definitely unfortunately I, I, I'm, I'm 
it hurts to say there are not too many of those wonderful guys around. That was the difference in recording in those days. We did just what you said. We went in the studio and everybody was sitting like we are now, facing one another. A lot of times there were not charts or arrangements, but they would say, what are we going to do with this? What key is this? And the saxophone player would say, I got some ideas. And we're talking about like Sam the Man Taylor. And we're talking about Milt Jackson, who is still with us, thank mm -hmm. goodness. And um, there was Arnett Cobbs, your mm -hmm. Texan. Texan. He was on a lot of those. And King Curtis, mm -hmm. you know, all of these. Sonny Stitt, Gene Ammons. No telling who might be in the studio when you went in. And there was this kind of family thing you know we'd sit around discuss the music and mm -hmm. somebody would send out and get some food and we'd eat and then we'd go back and say look I think I'm going to change this but the wonderful thing was that people were there in person you could stop if you had a change of heart okay which is unlike what they do today you know a lot of it is already pre-programmed and pre-done and you got to go in and sing to the track mm -hmm. I know that's uh, progress but it's difficult but it's stifled, for me. Does it stifle it's the creativity? Yes, yes. There's no yes. improvisation going no on. No <laughs> improvisation whatsoever. And for instance, you know, you may go on stage and during the middle of your performance, you may catch somebody's eye and realize that their body language tells you they're enjoying <laughs> or either they're not. Mm -hmm. And you'd like to respond to that. Okay. You know? Mm -hmm. And, I mean, how else does the music become personal? How else? unless you can go back and, and I interject what it is you give me by smiling. Correct. You know? And so that's the reason in the later years I was amazed that they finally, somebody finally decided they were going to sign me <laughs> <laughs> and let me go and, and go into a studio with live musicians once again. Mm -hmm. You know? Traveling around the country now, give us a, a, a retrospective of the difference today versus what it was when you initially started out singing. Let me say, when I came to Austin, I could not go to the Radisson, okay. right? Yes, ma'am. You understand? I understand. Okay. Uh, it was difficult, and the music was relegated to our so-called Soulville, the section of town okay. where the Afro-Americans predominantly, a lot of times, not only here in Austin, but most places, we did a lot of Southern touring. Okay. And we had to get in town in time to go to the heart of where the black people lived, mm -hmm. go into whatever was the top barbershop or the beauty shop. To let them know that you're in town? Let them know and okay. bring that car <laughs> and bus and park it where they can see it okay. because nobody's going to put their hard-earned money out if you're not there. And at that time, hard-earned money was like $7 mm -hmm. to go to the concert, maybe so less there, than there that. Was, so there was no pre-sale? No Everything was pre at the door? No, baby. And that's why you had to be careful because a lot of times now a lot of entertainers have clauses in their contracts that say, well, I get paid before I go on the stage. We didn't have that. We had to do the performance <laughs> and pray to God the promoter ain't gone, you know, mm -hmm. which sometimes that could happen. Or you had to have somebody run outside and make sure the tickets not be sold twice, <laughs> you know. But uh, times uh, do change, and hopefully for the better. I don't know if it's, I don't know. You played on Broadway, yes. and you received a Tony. How did that, yes. How did you feel? The most unbelievable moment 
of my life. You know the reason I say that, and people may think that's funny, but I say it because I have been singing 50 years. I have never until once in my life I have received a Grammy. That don't make sense. Okay, right. And that is the award, the trophy, the mantelpiece structure that they give you to say, oh, you've been good at what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think longevity has a lot to do, to paraphrase <laughs> Dr. King, I'd like to live a long life, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think longevity, if you can stay in this music long enough to be remembered by somebody, Mm -hmm. I I think that's the sign of success. And for me, the older I get and I hear people say, I remember you, that's for me is all I need. I did a concert a few weeks, a few months ago in Brooklyn New York. Brooklyn Academy of Music, Brooklyn, New York. And there was a woman in the audience who opened her wallet and had an autograph that I signed in 1950. Can you believe? This is 1998 almost. She still had it. And it was written on a piece of brown paper from a brown paper bag. Mm -hmm. And on that, I put her name and thanked her for liking my first record which was so long. And she was in that audience that day. It was probably the most emotional moment that I can remember Mm -hmm. because she described what I wore the first time she saw me. (laughs) She described how long she stood in line to get inside. Mm -hmm. And she said that she still remembers that I was nice to her. Those are the important things. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the important things. Your membership in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Well, (laughs) I'm there. And I guess a lot of that came about because there were people who constantly said when the list came out, where are the girls? You know? (laughs) Okay. Looked like we would not get, where are the girls? You know? And there was this fine line uh, that distinguishes rock and roll from rhythm and blues. I was a rhythm and blues singer. Not a rock and roll singer, but what they did, like my friend Little Richard says very loudly, rhythm and blues had a baby and they called it rock and roll, you see? Mm -hmm. So I just happened to be there when all of this came about. And I lasted to look like there wasn't nobody else to put up in there. So they said, let's take Ruth. Of course, Aretha went in before I did, and as well did Laverne. I'm there, and uh, I was there about four months ago in Cleveland to this huge structure. And I saw my uh, little section mm-hmm. of memorabilia. Uh, I don't even remember sheet music that had my picture on it. <laughs> but they found it, you know, and there it is. And they had my tambourine and one of my dresses, not one from that particular period. If you look at the size of it, you know. (laughs) I did not wear that dress in 1950. Uh, But it was wonderful to go in and see this. 
it was exceptionally wonderful because my sons got to see it. Okay, good. And they did not, they, they never really knew at that time what I was about because they were both born in the 50s, mm-hmm. you see. And uh, it has become something now that's a part of the lot of, of the curriculum in schools. They're talking about this music. Mm-hmm. And I'm still articulate enough to go in and do some question and answers. And I think that's what needs to be done. Are we losing out on some of our, our heritage, our, our contribution to, to this form, form of music? Are you finding African-American young people? Not coming to it. Not coming to it. Not honoring it. I don't know what the reasons are. And I've tried to look at this straight down the middle. And, and I think the only way I can do that is to really relive some of the visits and the things that this music stands for or reminds people of. Okay. Came along and was done at a very, very hard time in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I say our I am a black person who was touring in the deep south, singing where there were hangings going on Mm -hmm. and where my car was being burned or where we were just emotionally abused. Mm -hmm. And I said at that time, I was young and kind of fly and had an attitude, you know, but for the persons who remained in the South and wherever else this kind of injustice existed mm-hmm. and dealt with the everyday hardships of that. Mm-hmm. I tip my hat because they're stronger than I, mm-hmm. but I'm glad they were strong because for that reason, there are certain things I can do now. I can talk about it, mm-hmm. but some of the things I experienced, like Jackie Wilson and all us, we, we used to say, my God, uh, how can you know how can this be but what we had working in our favor was that after we got through with the music we could get on the bus and go on back home mm-hmm. you know and i think that it has to be uh the parents the grandparents of the now generation mm-hmm. because the now generation does not know anything mm-hmm. about me you know and never will because uh, communications, the media, the television, they're not going to let them know about me, mm-hmm. but so much. You've done some radio work, Harlem Hip Parade and, and some Blue other things. Blue Stage. Blue Stage. How do you enjoy uh, the other side of, of, of the table or the, or the window? I liked it very much because I think radio is the medium. Okay, thank you. I've always <laughs> felt that because it does require some kind of imagination. You know, you have to envision what you what's being said and you don't do that in television and MTV there's all there for you to see it you know and so for the moment you it's not really a learning tool anymore it's uh, an art form that allows a lot of non-talent to become great stars now I'll say that and they probably never let me say that again but that's the way I feel and I said to some of the wonderful people here I said if the lights go out we're gonna find out we ain't got too many stars left (laughs) if there's no electricity and nobody pushing the buttons and no reverbs and no strobe lights and no smoke screens we're gonna find out that we don't have too much out here going for us you know but I think the wonderful thing about radio, and I loved it when I was doing it, mainly because I, I would take Harlem Hit Parade, first of all. Mm-hmm. 
And in that particular radio show, I was able to talk one-on-one with stars that I had worked with. And, baby, they couldn't lie looking at me because I was there. There. Okay. You know, and it was always interesting. Do you remember, you know, like Bo Diddley was on my show, and I said, Bo Diddley, do you remember the night I had to run in your hearse in Kansas City to get out because Jackie Wilson didn't show up? And the audience was going mad throwing bottles. And Bo Diddley was taking his band around in a hearse at that time. Mm-hmm. And I jumped in the hearse to get out of town with him, you know. So there were things that we could remember. You know, I could talk to Edda James and everybody else. And I always was proud of that show. I was proud of it. And now there are a couple of other shows that kind of following behind that idea. Good enough, you know. But some of it is like uh, not real. There are a lot of the legends that are still around. People just don't look for them. Mm -hmm. A lot of us are still here. I know you have another interview to to do, but one last thing I I, want to ask you. Looking back on your career, is there anything that you would have done differently? Well, I don't know where the music is concerned if I would have done anything differently. I would have possibly had a better sense of the business end of it. Okay. Um, When I began, music was a way for me to get out. Mm -hmm. Not really get out, and then on the other hand, it was a way for me to contribute. And I knew because one day I sang for a wedding and they paid me $35. That was more than my father made for the whole week on his job. My father was a laborer and worked very hard. Only lived to be 42 years old. My mother was a domestic. But the kind of money that I see being earned, if I'd had a better sense of the business, I probably would not have been fighting for 11 years against my parent record company for back royalties. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, uh, I brought about uh, the construction of a foundation called the Rhythm and Blues Foundation, who now looks and fights for back royalties. Well, that's what the intent is. Mm -hmm. You know, they get slow, too, sometimes, (laughs) till I come to the table. They say, oh, here she comes. Don't let her in here, you know. But that's what it's about. I mean... If they're going to sell, if my art is still good now, mm-hmm. then all I'm asking for is the recognition to show that I contributed. You know, mm-hmm. I was here a long time, and I'm not going away, nowhere. I I refuse to be sick. I was sick a little <laughs> bit before I got here, but I ain't going to lay down. No, 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 because there's still too many good songs, too many good stories, too many inspiring stories, too many nice persons like yourself who will like open up this wellspring. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to be talked about here. And there's more to what we're talking about than you'll find at the House of Blues. But the blues ain't black no more, you know that. It's green, because it's too much money. And young people who are attempting to sing the blues nowadays don't have the real reasons. I don't see a reason to sing the blues if you got a mansion and a chauffeur limousine and a big bank account. When we came along, we had the reasons, and that's why it's different. Looking out my window, I see my world has changed. Sun won't rise this morning, cause baby's gone away. Yesterday, I could tell.
tell myself that he'd be back for sure. But that train don't stop here anymore. This has been a tribute to the late Ruth Brown, born January 12, 1928, died November 17, 2006, at the age of 78. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, write us. Also, let us know what radio station you heard is over. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at KUT.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm John L. Hansen, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 1 University Station, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 1 University Station, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.